go ahead and take out your Bibles and turn to Exodus, I'm sorry, Genesis, we're off to a good start, Genesis chapter 11, Genesis chapter 11, we're actually going to be in 12 to 15, I know it says that up there, um, 12 and 15, but we're going to start, we're going to back up to Genesis 11 just a little bit, and as you're turning there, let me ask you this, how do you do with trusting promises? You struggle trusting in a promise. And and I think a lot of times the answer would be, well, it really depends, right? It depends on who's making the promise. I remember when I was a kid and be out grocery shopping with my mom or go to the mall. I hate shopping. I hated it as a kid. I still hate it as a grown-up. Just don't like it. And, And my mom, you know, using the famous parenting technique of bribery, would say, hey, we'll stop for ice cream on the way home. And my next question was always, do you promise? Let's get this in writing, Mom. Do you promise? Oh, yeah, sure, we'll stop for ice cream on the way home. And in my memory, this may not be fair, so let me just preface it with that. In my memory, nine times out of ten, we never actually went for ice cream. Just saying it. My mom might disagree with that. But it just often felt like, but you promised. You you promised. How could you not do this? And she'd say, well, something changed. We had to get up. It went later. And I get it. As a grown-up now, I get it. Things change. It's hard, though, sometimes when people break promises to then trust in a promise. And today we're going to be looking at Scripture and a very important promise. And I know as we're going through this passage, there are people here who are struggling with with trusting promises in general. Maybe you've had someone break a promise to you in your life. Maybe a friend or spouse or parent has broken an important promise to you. Maybe you've broken promises to yourself. And so we come to something that's a promise from Lord God Almighty, and we're kind of like, yeah, well, you know, we'll see. We need to be able to come to the Word and understand who is making the promise, which means then that we can trust the promise explicitly. God's promises never fail. Now, we are going through this sermon series called Focal Point. It is an overview of all of Scripture. We're going from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, we're not going through every verse. We're not even going to like look at every single uh, passage or even every single book. But we want to get the main storyline of Scripture. And so far, we've talked about creation. We've kind of been moving slow. We spent a week in Genesis 1 and 2. And then we spent uh, last week in Genesis 3 and kind of skipped through to chapter 11, which catches us up to where we are. And we talked last week about Adam and Eve's sin and how it wasn't just as simple as don't do this and they did it and oops, they did something they weren't supposed to do. It was much deeper than that. It was an act of rebellion against God. It was a dethroning or an effort at dethroning God or de-godding God. They wanted to put themselves in the Lord's place. They wanted the ability to determine what was right and wrong. And by doing so, they were saying, God doesn't have that right. Now, this is important because as we get to the promise today, this is the context that it's in. Sin has entered the world. We skim through some chapters last week. Right away, we see murder, we see hatred, we see chaos spreading and at work in the world. We see death at work in the world. One generation after another, it says, and they died, and they died, and they died, and they died. 
The Bible makes it very clear that every single person is born a sinner. David writes in the Psalms, Psalm 51 verse 5, Surely I was sinful at birth. He doesn't say, I was born great and I was pure and this world really wrecked me. He says, no, I was born a sinner. Paul writes in Romans 3.10, there's no one righteous, not even one. And we talked about how we've got to understand that bad news. We've got to understand Genesis chapter 3, because if we can correctly identify the problem, we can correctly see the solution of Jesus Christ. But now as we come to God's promise, we're going to be looking at his promise to this man, Abram. You probably know him as Abraham. God changes his name later. But we have to understand that it's in this context of humanity living in rebellion against God. So keep that in your mind as we come to what's going on in Genesis chapter 12. This promise that we're going to look at is also known as a covenant. A covenant is a good biblical word for a promise that is, in their mindset, it wasn't just like my mom saying, I promise we'll go for ice cream. It is a legally binding promise. It's more like a contract. They didn't write out contracts and sign them. They would make a covenant. It was a legally binding promise. And God is going to make a covenant with sinful people who are actively living in rebellion against him. That's amazing. He's going to make a promise. And through this promise, he is going to legally bind himself in a contract to his own people because that's how important God considers his relationship with us. That's amazing. There's such hope there for people that would say, God cannot love me. God cannot accept me. I want to show you someone that he loved unconditionally that he chose in spite of this man and how messed up he was, and then he works through him to eventually bring us Jesus Christ, our Savior, through whom God can save us as well. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Before we can look at God's promise, we we need to first look at how we try to fix things on our own. We have a lot of kind of misguided notions, misguided plans, For the past about four or five weeks, I've been working on my car off and on. It's been squealing. I was, you know, those cars that go down the street and every head turns. I was that car for the past like couple months. I I also, I wouldn't say I'm handy. I would say I'm cheap. Uh, I don't like to pay somebody else to do what I can do on my own. And, and so I, I went in, I said, I think it's the brakes, brake pads were fine, changed out my rotors, they needed changing, saved myself some money there, doing it myself. That didn't do it, was still squealing, thought it was a wheel bearing, now we're getting serious. Changing a wheel bearing is not easy. In fact, I broke something when I was doing it, I'm not even sure the bearing needed to be changed, but it did after I tried. <laughs> changed the wheel bearing, it's great rides a lot better. It was still squealing like crazy. Found out there was this like little metal tab from some old shield or something that had just bent and was contacting something under the car and squealing away. And all I had to do was just bend it a little bit and car's fine. Misguided plans. $400 later, my car's running great and it's not making any noise. And I'm sure somewhere it all needed to be fixed anyway. 
But it's funny, you know. I mean, it's not that funny, but it's funny when it's not your money or time or agony. Um, But don't we all do this in life? We see the messiness of our world, the messiness of our lives, and we're like, I got this. I know where to start. Well, that didn't work, but I got this. And we try something else. So let's set the scene here of Genesis chapter 11. It's been roughly... 2,500 years or so, 2,500 years since the fall of Adam and Eve, roughly, okay? It's been a long time. Many generations have gone on. We've had the whole flood and the recovery. It's been a long time that sin has been at work in the world. Humanity has increased. Humanity has spread. Sin has also increased and spread as well. And then we come to Genesis chapter 11, and and I want to get into Genesis 12, but we've got to understand 11 first. The Tower of Babel is so important to understand if we're going to look at God's promise to Abraham. So briefly, I want to do this as quick as possible. Let me read through these first couple of verses here so we understand what's going on. Because this is one of those stories, if you grew up in the church, it's probably like, ah, I've heard about the Tower But I want us to take kind of a a, a grown-up look at this. Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and they settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Now, what's going on here? What's this tower? Archaeologists have found similar sorts of towers. They call them ziggurats. It's probably roughly what this was. But their purpose in culture in general that we found was an act of worship because they're in their kind of mindset the gods were up there somewhere so the closer we can get to them the better we can worship but there's an interesting phrase here because they say when they build this tower come let us make a name for ourselves they want to build a city to get together so they won't be scattered so they've got this great plan we're going to fix some of these problems to get everybody together. They want to bring everybody together and work out all the problems because it'll be great if we could all just be together. And then they want this tower. By saying they want to make a name for themselves, basically what they're saying is we, we want to be like God. We want to be important. We want to be as close to God or the gods as we can possibly be. We're going to be so great. Now, I know, I know there's people here just going, that's just such an archaic story. What does this have to do with us today? What's the big deal? The big deal is this. They're looking at the problems of their life and the problems of their world, and they're saying, I've got this. I can figure this out. Let's just work really hard and put all of our heads together, and we're going to make this work. But it's not going to work. God knows it's not going to work. In fact, I believe God knows it's actually going to make it worse. So what should a loving, all-powerful God do with these people? And that's a hard question. 
Should he just allow them to go on trusting their own ways, maybe even possibly making it worse and worse? And we can go to other passages where sometimes he does that. But in this passage, he steps in. Because sometimes God steps in and messes up our misguided plans in order to turn our attention to him. Let me say that again. Sometimes God, in his grace, steps in and messes up our misguided plans in order to turn our attention to him. So they have these plans, and what is it that God does? Let me read verses 5 through 9. I'm just going to leave verse 4 up there because I want to come back to it. But the Lord God came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord God, or so the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because the, whole, the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. What a mean and horrible God. Right? Don't, don't we read a passage like that and go, but these people, they were trying to do something good and their hearts were in the right place. But the Lord knows their plans are not going to be good. And he steps in. And there's a big question. Why would he do that? Is God just mean and nasty and waiting for us to get uh, going the wrong way and doing the wrong thing so he can just smite us? No. It's because God knows that he has something better. God has a better plan than their misguided plans. God has a better plan than our misguided plans. So look back at verse 4 that's up here. Because there's some themes in here you're going to hear again when we get to Abram. What is it that they want? They want to make a name for themselves. Now, in their culture, that meant we want to be important, we want to be powerful, we want to have a sense of purpose in this world. It's kind of all of those things. They want to make a name for themselves. They also want a place to belong. They they want to gather together. They don't want to just be scattered and, and independent of one another. They want that community. Now, are these wrong things? Do we want to feel important? Do we want to feel like our our lives have purpose and meaning? I, I hope we would all say absolutely. Do we feel at times disconnected from other people and we want to see those things reconnected and rejoined together and have a true sense of community? I think if we're honest with ourselves, yes, we do. Maybe not some people, but in general, we want to feel that connection. Now let's turn to Genesis chapter 12. And see how God's promise to Abram comes right after what happens in Babel. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. God has a greater promise. They were trying to do things on their own, but God has a greater promise. This promise that God makes to this man, Abram, again, later changes his name to Abraham, is a promise that still applies to us today. In fact, I would say this is arguably the second most important promise in all of scripture. And it could be argued that it's the most important promise because what I would consider the most important promise is actually part of this one. 
That's how important this passage is. This passage sets up the entirety of the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament. All of it comes from God's promise to Abram in this passage. My whole point in teaching this sermon series, Focal Point, is to help you get the big picture of the Bible. So that when you read things, study things, learn Bible lessons, or maybe Bible stories that you've learned from a kid, I want you to be able to put those things together and go, no way, these things actually form one great plan, one great story. And this passage is so crucial to understanding God's plan and the story of what he's doing throughout history. So let's look at this important promise. Starting at Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those or I will uh, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, let's start with verse 1. You know, when the Bible introduces somebody in Scripture, especially somebody as important as Abraham, it's important to ask, what do we know about this person? And, and a lot of times, like Noah, when, when you look at Noah and the flood, it says Noah was a righteous man. When you get to somebody else, it might talk about their lineage and where they came from, and they lived a great life, and God chose to work through them. Abraham's really interesting. Because if, if I'm not going to read it, but if you look back at 27 to 32 of chapter 11, Here's really the two main things we know about Abram. Number one is, he has a wife, Sarai, that cannot have children. He can't have kids. Number two, he lives in this place called Haran. That's really it. The Bible doesn't talk about Abram being a great guy. doesn't say he wasn't a great guy. The Bible doesn't say that he was righteous. doesn't say he wasn't. doesn't even say that he believes in God. Now, this is fascinating because it's important to look at Scripture and say, what is Scripture? What is God emphasizing? And in this passage, God is not emphasizing how great Abraham is. So when we look at this powerful plan and this promise that God brings and he comes to Abraham, it's not because Abraham is so special. And the language of the promise is all about putting God first, not Abram. God says, I will bless you. I will do this. I have this plan. The promise is based on who God is, not on who Abraham is. This is such an important theme throughout Scripture. The solution to our problem, our sin problem, and ultimately the solution to all the problems in the world is not ultimately about our actions, but about God's action. God takes the initiative. So often our actions are like the Tower of Babel. Well-intentioned. We really mean it. We're really sincere. But we leave God out of the picture. And God steps in and grabs a hold of us and says, this is actually all about me. So let's pay attention to what God is teaching us in this passage. Let's look at the promise in verses 2 and 3. What are some of the things God promises to Abram? In verse 2 he says, 
I will make you into a great nation. I read that and I think I'm, I'm going to gather together a people or from Abraham, I'm going to make a people group that's going to be gathered together. What did the people in Babel want? Let's, let's gather together and make a great city. And God comes to Abraham and he promises him the same thing. But, but wait, there's more. He also says, I will make your name great. It's the exact phrase that the people building the tower used. What's so fascinating about that is that God knows when we seek after our own things in our own way, and we seek after solving our own problems in our own way, or when we think we're going to solve all the world's problems in our own way, it's not going to work. The other really interesting thing is that at the heart of all sin is that we're substituting something for God. Anything. Our own desires, our own preferences, whatever it is, we're substituting something for the great things that God has for us. God knows our ultimate wants and needs way more than we do. And he knows that he is the source of meeting those wants and needs. And God promises this man, Abraham, that he will be be the beginning of a nation of people. And that nation of people is the Jewish nation, Israel. They will be the focal point of the entirety of the rest of the Old Testament. And it all comes from this promise right there. He promises him, I will make you a great nation. He says, I will bless you. This is about having a relationship between Abraham and God. He says, I will make your name great. They're going to have purpose and importance because of God's relationship with them. And then in verse 3, he says, I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. He says, I'm going to watch out for you. I'm going to protect you. He also says that this promise to Abraham isn't just about Abraham and his descendants. There's an overflowing effect to other people. And look at the end there, that last passage, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That phrase right there is what makes this promise apply to all of us. I don't know about you. I don't know. We might have a handful of people here that are from Jewish descent. Incredible promises in the Old Testament. Most of us are not of Jewish descent. But here at the beginning of God calling the Jewish nation, we are told there was always an emphasis on through them to bless the whole world. And praise God, because that, I believe, includes all of us. This promise right here applies to every single one of us. And notice all of the I will statements. God says, I will do this. A lot of us grow up with a relationship with God that's kind of based on, it's like God saying to to us, if you will do this, then I'll do this. And we think, well, if I'm obedient to God, then good things will happen. If I'm a good Christian, then good things will happen. There is no record of Abraham doing anything good before God brings this promise to him. It is not based on what Abraham has done. There is no if statement here. There is no condition. 
Now, God does call Abram. He needs to leave and go somewhere else. But it's it's de-emphasized in the text. Nowhere is it considered a condition for this promise. So here we have this promise in Genesis chapter 12. And, and we're going to fast forward a whole bunch of years. Because Abraham struggles with this promise. I think we can identify with struggling when life goes on and it seems like things aren't coming true. It seems like God's promises aren't coming to fruition. So skip ahead to Genesis chapter 15. Many years later, Abraham has uprooted his family. He's gone to this place that God showed him, this promised land, the land of Canaan. And he lives there, but he lives there kind of as a spectator. He doesn't own land. He has no permanent dwelling place. And he has no children. I want to read through some of these passages in Genesis 15. I'm not going to put them up on the board for us. But I just want you to see what Abraham is struggling with here. After this, this is Genesis 15:1. the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. And I love this because it's like God knows, right? God knows Abraham, his child is struggling. And he's coming and saying, I, Abraham, I just want to remind you. I've got you. But Abraham said, verse 2, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me? Since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abraham said, you've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Abraham's saying, all these things you promised me, God, they're not coming true. What am I supposed to do with this? He goes on, verse 4. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars. If indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. God tells this man who's unable to have children, look at the stars. The descendants that are going to come from you are greater in number than the stars. No one will be able to count them. He's encouraging Abraham. And in verse 6, it says, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Man, I could spend a whole sermon just on that one verse and we'll talk about it more later. But I love this. Abraham trusts God. And that's what makes him considered righteous. He says, okay, God, I'm going to believe in your promises He said to him, also, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur, the Chaldeans, to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abraham said, sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? This is the other half of the promise. God, where is it? Where's the fulfillment of the promise? Now we get into something that is so hard for us as modern people to understand, but we need to walk through this because it's it's gory and beautiful at the same time. So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. And it's interesting, God doesn't tell him what to do with these animals. But Abraham does something. It says, Abraham brought all these, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abraham drove them away. Now, maybe God gave him more instructions, and it's, not just, it's just not written down. 
But as I've studied this in the background of this, I believe Abraham knew exactly what God was doing. Because this is a known thing. They had these things in their culture that would institute a covenant, a promise. It's kind of like if you're selling a house, you have to go in for like the 10-hour signing of the papers, right? Oh, that was horrible. You sit down, you got to read all these. Well, actually, you don't have time to read it. You just have to assume it's right and you sign your life away accordingly. It's like any time you, you download a new app or you get a new program or something. There's the long statement that you're just whipping through and scrolling. I mean, who reads it? And then you sign your life away. We understand that when I sign that document, I am making an obligation. But could you imagine somebody from another culture had never heard of that? Be like, what, so you make a couple scribbles on a paper and suddenly you're obligated to something? That's kind of silly. They would do things, an action that represented the promise and the agreement they were entering into. So what's going on here? Abraham takes most of these animals, this is the gory part, and he cuts them in half and separates them so that there's a path down the middle. Because there was one type of covenant enactment ceremony where two parties would walk through dead animals that had been cut up in this way. And the action of doing this was saying, if I fail to keep my half of this agreement, may what happened to these animals happen to me. It's very visible. They were very visual learners. It was probably more than just visual. It probably stunk too. It's, it's very memorable. It's like we really mean this. And so Abraham seems to understand this. He arranges everything. And I'm sure in his mind, it's like, okay, somehow, some way, like God and I are going to make an agreement here. We're, we're going to make a promise one to another. And look at what happens in verse 12. As the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, know for certain that for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. That kind of skips ahead to the book of Exodus and their slavery in Israel, or in Egypt rather. Afterward, they will come out with great possessions. You, however, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So God is tying this in to the promise he's already made. And look at what happens. Verse 17, when the sun had set, darkness had fallen. A smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said to your descendants, I give this land from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river. And he goes on to outline all of the borders. Did you catch what happened? In their mind, contract, covenant, promise between two people happened in this case by the two of them walking through the pieces. Who walked through the pieces in Genesis chapter 15? Only God. This smoke and this fire are, are used throughout Scripture as the presence of the Lord. God walks through the pieces and he makes a covenant to Abraham saying, I am promising you this. I am binding myself to my promise. I will do this for you. And God says, if I fail to do this, may what happened to these animals happen to me. Who is Abraham? He's nobody. 
He's nobody important. He's not an incredibly righteous guy. In fact, next week we'll look at some of the crazy choices he makes in his life. He's not always incredibly bright or intelligent. Lies about his wife, says she's his sister, things go poorly, hilarity ensues. He's not a great person at times. And when we come to Scripture, should we not praise God that he upholds promises to people that are unworthy? I may not know all of you, and you may not know me, but I know this. None of us are worthy. But we have a promise-making, promise-keeping God who has a great track record of making and keeping promises to unworthy people. And God says that this covenant promise is based solely on him and his plan and his purpose. Throughout the Old Testament, this promise will be called into question. If you know anything of Bible stories, you know that God's people were were not always faithful. Things did not always go well between them and the Lord, and constantly they're saying, God, where is it? Where's the promise? And constantly God reminds them, I will rescue you for my own sake. Because he made a promise to them. If we fast forward to the New Testament, there's a very interesting passage in Matthew chapter 1. Matthew will start the beginning of his book, his gospel, by introducing us to Jesus Christ. But he introduces him in a very interesting way. Matthew 1, 1 and 2 says this is the genealogy, that's sort of the the descendants, the lineage, the genealogy of Jesus, the family from whom Jesus came. The Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then he begins the genealogy. And who does he begin it with? Abraham, father of Isaac. Why does it matter that Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, comes as a descendant of Abraham? Because God promised one day through Abraham, all peoples on the earth would be blessed. The gospel of Jesus Christ was promised in advance to Abraham that one day God would find a way to gather his people One day, all those things that we search for, that we try to find in our own way, God says, I know what you need more than you know, and I am going to bless you, and I have a plan and a purpose. And that plan goes all the way to Jesus Christ. He is God's plan and God's purpose. Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 11, they're trying to fix things. On their own. And God comes to these sinful, messed up people, just like us, and He makes a promise. He makes a promise to have a relationship with sinful people. He makes a promise to bless them and care for them and provide for them. He makes a promise to gather those people together, to belong together. And ultimately, He makes a promise that through those people, he's going to reach the whole world. Friends, if you're a Christian today, if you're part of the church, this church or any other church, you're still living out that promise. 
you are the way that God is blessing the whole world. You go, uh, I don't know about that. We are the carriers of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is that gospel that is the greatest blessing that anyone ever needs. And we need to look at this promise and be thankful that it came to us to hear about Jesus and be saved. But we need to not stop there and say, it's not just about me. Who can I share this with? So let me come back to where we started. Are you struggling today to trust in promises? This is a promise from God that God set in stone. In fact, greater than stone, he set it in his own character, in his own nature. He said, I will do this. And every chapter of the Old Testament lays out how God is keeping his promise. And then Jesus comes on the scene as the great fulfillment of the promise. And every chapter of the New Testament is based on how Jesus is the promised blessing from God through whom God is going to bless the whole world. It actually all depends on Genesis 12 and 15. We are still living out that promise today. In a few moments, we're going to take communion. Communion is actually another sort of promise, uh, um, covenant enactment ceremony. It's, it's a remembrance, unlike what it was before, where it was enacting that. We're remembering something that was enacted. In Jeremiah chapter 31, the prophet Jeremiah comes to the Israelites who are just struggling. And he says, one day there will be a new covenant. And when Jesus gathered for the Last Supper with his disciples... We are told that he says to them, this is a new covenant. We have a new relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. And it didn't depend on what we did. It didn't depend on how great we were, or how much we deserved it. It depends on the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is our new promise, our new relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. And God always keeps his promises. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we struggle. We struggle as people who often don't keep our own promises. We struggle with the results of other people breaking their promises to us. And so when we come to your promises in Scripture, it's hard to conceive of someone who always keeps promises. And it's really hard when your promises extend not just to a moment or even to a lifetime, but cover thousands of years of history as you are working constantly to fulfill your promises. It's hard too, Father. Sometimes we feel like we're so great and we're so worthy and things aren't going great. And yet you bring frustration to our own plans in the hopes that we will trust in yours. At other times we struggle because we think we are so unworthy. How could you possibly love us? And then we see someone like Abraham. And you just come and you choose to love him. And you make a commitment to him that you carry out in spite of the crazy stuff that he does. And God, maybe there's someone here today that accepted your son as their savior and they know the crazy stuff they've been doing. I want them to hear today, Father, and I think you do too, that you have made a promise through your son, Jesus Christ.
to love them, to care for them, to erase the penalty of their sins through the death and resurrection of Jesus. I pray, Father, that promise would cut through the doubts and the struggles. And I pray as the people of the church that we would live out this promise and present it to others that they could see in us that we are trusting you and your work in this world in spite of all the craziness. And Father, that we would be quick to tell them about Jesus Christ, the greatest promise ever made. As we move to communion, I pray that you would challenge us with these things, remind us of these things, help them to be the overflow of our heart, not just in this moment, but as we go from this place as well. Pray this in your name. Amen.